Well, good morning. All right. So great to be here. Glad you made it past all the rain and the inclement weather. Could have been snow. Could have been snow. Just remember that. I want to begin by asking you a question. I wonder if you've ever seen something that has just changed your life. I mean, like, radically just impacted the way that you see your life and, and the things that happen all around you. I can remember when I was younger, uh, sitting at a stoplight with my mom, and, and the weather was much like it is now, very rainy, drizzly, but it was dark. It was nighttime. We're sitting at a stoplight right at an intersection at Rochester and M59, very busy intersection, a lot of traffic. And all of a sudden, I hear my mom scream. And then, boom, crash. Now, it wasn't us, thankfully, but right next to us, the car directly next to us had gotten rear-ended full speed. So hard, I can remember seeing the taillights of that car go up into the air and then come back down again. Just unbelievable. And nothing could prepare me for that, right? Like, when, when, when you see those things in the movies, you say, awesome. Dude, that's so cool. I can't believe that. Wow. If you see it in real life, <laughs> when you see it, like, up close and personal, you don't say, wow. <laughs> you say, whoa. Whoa. This is awful. This is terrible. I mean, what's going to happen? Is this person going to die now just, just because why? They, they got distracted for a moment, or, or maybe they made some poor decisions. No amount of information that I had received could prepare me to see that. Right, like none of the dare seminars back in school, none of the old commercials for crash test dummies, for those of you who remember that, none of the internet pictures, none, none of these things could prepare me for. You see, there's a big difference between having knowledge about something and actually seeing it, actually experiencing it firsthand. And the same thing is true of God, right? Many of us have read the Bible, and we've found ourselves maybe saying things like, wow. God is amazing. I wish I could see God. In fact, I've actually heard people say, I cannot wait to get to heaven because I'm going to run up to Jesus and just slap him a high five. I'm going to run over, I'm going to give him a big old bear hug. <laughs> just ridiculous things, right? Because what we see in Scripture is, is nothing like that. Is nothing like that. Instead, what we see time and time again, over and over again, is that man's response to seeing and experiencing God is not wow, but woe. So if you would please join me in your Bibles, your smart devices, you're welcome to use those, fire them up, find yourself in the book of Isaiah one more time, this time in Isaiah chapter 6. And as you find your place there, I'll just give you a little bit of context, help you understand uh, what's going on here. Again, Isaiah is a prophet which means that he's someone who receives the words of God in order to communicate them to the people of God. Uh, he's been serving in this role under the king of the time, who's, who was King Isaiah. And King Isaiah reigned over Jerusalem for 52 years. This was longer than the rule of King David. This is longer than the rule of King Solomon. And during this time, the nation of Israel had experienced an amazing season of prosperity and wealth and abundance under the leadership of King Isaiah. There was economic growth. There was agricultural growth. There was architectural growth. There's military growth. So listen, they have 
more money, more food, more buildings, more security than they have ever had before. But here's what happened. As the people of God became more confident in man, they became more casual toward God. And it's interesting that in chapter 1, as this book begins, we read about a great number of people that come into the church. right? In fact, it says that they're trampling the courts uh, as thousands gathered in, in places of worship. But the problem is that while they attended church, right, in a culture that had become so casual toward God, it had very little impact on their daily lives. Right? So the temple, this temple that was once filled with the glory of God at its dedication under King Solomon, had become more of a, I don't know, a national treasure, uh, a tradition that the people participated in. See, they still, they still came They still participated in everything that was going on in the temple, but at the end of the day, their lives were just not very much different than the pagans that were all around them. So what we see here is that man's affluence and abundance leads to spiritual apathy towards the Lord. As they became more confident in man, they became more casual Toward God. And because they had a diminished view of who God is, they actually felt secure and safe in their sins. We wouldn't fall into that trap today, would we? What I want you to see is that this is nothing new. This is what happens when the people of God lose their vision of God. And so God is going to reveal himself to the prophet Isaiah, and it is going to radically change him forever. It's going to change the way that he perceives God, how how he lives, works, and plays in the everyday stuff of life, because seeing the Lord leads to serving the Lord. So let's read this together. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. See, the first thing that we see from this passage is that we want to see God for who he really is. We want to see God for who he really is. After King Isaiah died, you can imagine the uncertainty, right? You can imagine the, the fear amongst the Israelites. They're thinking, what's going to happen now? Our leader is gone, right? Our, our political figure is gone. How's the economy going to fare? Are, are we going to continue to have enough resources to survive? Are we still safe? Or are we susceptible to, to attack? Are we vulnerable? And then Isaiah receives this vision. And most scholars believe this is similar to the experience that the Apostle John had while on the island of Patmos, right? When, when there is a revelation of Jesus where, where this heavenly veil is lifted And he is given a vision where he sees the Lord. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, do you see the contrast here? Do you see the contrast? In a time when God's people are fearing for their future, when they are uncertain of what lies ahead because their king has died, Isaiah receives an incredible vision, one that says that God 
is still on the throne. Because while a great king may have left the earth, while a great political leader for their nation had been dethroned, the king of kings still sovereignly rules and reigns over all things. And he is high and lifted up. Now, verse 2 mentions these seraphim, and, and many of you sang some songs featuring these angelic creatures leading us up to Christmas, right? This is the only place in Scripture that they're actually mentioned. And they are announcing the presence of God, right? They are calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is important because if you're creating a document in English, if if you're writing something and you want to emphasize something, there's a number of things that you can do in order to accomplish that, right? We could italicize it. We could use big, bold print. We could underline it. Uh, But in Hebrew, they didn't have those things. When they wanted to emphasize something, they used repetition. In Hebrew, they didn't have those things, so when they wanted to emphasize something, they used repetition. See what I did there? That's why when Jesus is going to say something really important, Right When he wants you to take note of the truth bomb that he is about to let go, he says things like, verily, verily. Hey, amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. And he is emphasizing the importance of these things. And there is a number of things that we're told about God in the scriptures. We're we're told that God is powerful, that God is just, that he is faithful. We're told in so many words that God is love. But there's only one attribute of God that is triple underscored, triple highlighted, triple emphasized, and it's his holiness. See, God is not just holy. He's not even holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Each repetition building upon the last, adding emphasis. And this also underscores the Trinitarian nature of God, right? That he is three persons. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. And therefore, God is then holy, holy, holy. And so this characteristic of God is so foundational to the God of the Scriptures, so foundational to the God of the Bible, that if we don't begin to grasp this holiness, then we do not actually know who the God of our Bible is. So what is holiness? It's a hard question. It's kind of like asking the question, what is fire? I mean, how do you describe that? (laughs) I think one of the best ways to go about that is to begin describing the effects that fire has on the things around it. Um, And so the same is true here, right? The mystery of the unique holiness and glory of God is is indescribable, is beyond our full comprehension, but we can begin to understand it, we can begin to get a grasp of it if we observe the effects God's holiness has on the things around him. So first, let's notice the effects on the angels, right? You would think that these angelic creatures, because they're in heaven with God, would be very comfortable in the presence of the Lord. That's not exactly what we see here, right? Because what we read is that these angels must cover themselves. Now, think about this. When God creates, he doesn't waste material, okay? Uh, My kids love watching these nature shows. We learn all kinds of 
fascinating animal facts, more than I even really care to know. But we watch them. And it, it's a great opportunity to not only observe uh, everything that they're teaching there, but we have a conversation about just how God creates things so amazingly. How create, he creates things perfectly in order to thrive in their environment. Right? So, so fish have scales. Right? They have fins. They have gills. Why? Because they live in the water. They're meant to thrive in that environment. Owls have wings to fly. They have these sharp talons to, to latch onto their prey. They have big, wide eyes to help them see at night because they are nocturnal. And here, we see that these seraphim have six wings, which is strange. You got to give me that, right? That's odd because only two of them are used for flying. Did you notice this? Only two of them are used for flying, so it's the other four that we want to take notice of together today because with two of those wings, they shield their face, and with the other two, they cover their feet. Now, why? These are angels, right? They, they haven't sinned like you or I. They, they have nothing to feel guilty of. They have nothing to be ashamed of, so why cover themselves? Because they are creatures, in awe of being in the presence of their creator. The holiness of God is too much for them to even bear looking at. Even the angels must cover themselves from it. And so God creates these seraphim with six wings. He gives them six wings so that they may be properly equipped to serve him and be in his immediate presence. And so the angels can't bear to look upon God, then it's, it's no surprise that fallen human beings can't either. And so what is the effect of God's holiness on man? Well, let's look at the most celebrated figure in the Old Testament, Moses. Right? He had seen God, but only veiled in, in smoke and, and in other ways. And when he says to God, can I see your face? Show me your face. God says, you know that can't happen. I've already told you, Moses, man shall not see my face and live. And so in Exodus 33, God carves out a cleft in the mountain. He says, here's what I'm going to do. Hide yourself in the cleft of the mountain. I'm going to cover it with my hand. And as I pass by, I'll remove my hand, and you can get a glimpse of my backside. I don't know, hindquarters is like how it literally translates. But... Yet because of this brief, limited exposure that he has, as Moses is descending down from the mountain, it says his face shone. It was radiant, so much so that as a result, Aaron and all the Israelites that are down there are afraid to even come near him anymore. Why? Just because Moses got a glimpse of the backside of God. When John the beloved friend of Jesus, is treated to his revelation of Jesus in all his glory when he sees him high and lifted up, enthroned in the heavens. We are told that John, this beloved friend of Jesus, fell at his feet as though dead. In Revelation 1.17, says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And we can't look at the sun, can we? Right? Even during a solar eclipse, you don't dare look directly at the sun for fear of going blind. But listen, that does not mean that we cannot know about the sun. Right? 
You can still feel the warmth of its rays. You can still take in its beauty from a distance. You can still see the life and the growth that it sustains on a daily basis. And the same is true of God. He is set apart. He is holy, holy, holy. He is high and lifted up, exalted above all others. But just look around you because the whole earth is full of his glory. That is what's so incredible about the incarnation, right? That's why this, this season of Christmas that we just celebrated is so special to us. When we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, when we celebrate the Christ, the one who is Emmanuel, that's God with us. And people join us all around singing songs like, veiled in flesh, the Godhead we see. Hail, incarnate deity. And yet, while they so easily profess these incredible truths with their mouths, while these words just roll off their lips during this season, they have a watered-down, spiritually anemic, truncated view of who God is. Because they're happy with the mangered Messiah. They're happy to leave him there. They have no problems with the adorable, safe, non-judgmental baby Jesus. And so just like the Israelites in our passage, they are very comfortable with Jesus. They are comfortable celebrating the rich traditions of Christianity so long as Jesus remains a babbling babe in the manger. I would go so far as to say that as long as he remains the one who died on the cross for sin but never rose from the dead because they are not comfortable with him, being, with him caring about sin and holiness. But they've forgotten that God is immutable. God is unchanging. He's the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and he will come again. He's going to come again to judge the world with power and might. And so this is really important for us because it's only after we see God for who he really is that we can begin to see ourselves for who we really are. And so that's our second point. We must see ourselves for who we really are in light of who God is. And so let's keep reading, picking up at verse 5. It says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah, this man of God, this prophet of God, receives a vision of God as he is high and lifted up, radiating his glory, and his response is not, oh, wow. It's woe. And this is not a judgment that is pronounced on others. This is not a, a, a woe to Israel. This is not a woe to the pagans that live around them. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. I have no business being in the presence of this holy God. And the reason that he gives is fascinating. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's an interesting confession. Because like we mentioned, Isaiah is a prophet. He literally spoke the words of God to the people of God. 
He was God's mouthpiece, right? His lips are the instrument that he uses to serve the Lord. And yet in the presence of a holy God, he realizes that even the spiritual gift that God has blessed him with was unclean. It was tainted because it was being communicated through him, this fallen human being. The very best he had to offer did not come close to God's perfect holiness. Now, what Isaiah is experiencing is a phenomenon that's been called double knowledge. John Calvin begins his Institutes of the Christian Religion. By summarizing this, he says this, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Because when God's radiant light pierces the darkest depths of our soul. His holiness reveals our fallen sinfulness. And so Isaiah is confronted with his sinfulness. He is convicted of his sinfulness. And so what does he do? He confesses his sinfulness. And after Isaiah's confession, one of these seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar. It's so hot, even the seraphim can't touch it. He takes it with a pair of tongs. And what does he do? He touches it to Isaiah's mouth and says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This, this is incredible, right? As Isaiah is confronted, he is convicted and confesses his sinfulness. God doesn't curse him, right? God, God doesn't say, shame on you, Isaiah, and make him feel guilty. He doesn't ask him to, to find a spotless lamb and, and to go through all the rituals to, to burn it as an offering to God, which would have been a customary thing to do, you understand? Oh no, instead what we see is that someone else has already provided an appropriate offering to God. And the coals from that offering are still burning hot, ready to take effect. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. A beautiful picture of the good news that says there is no shame, no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because there was already an innocent, spotless lamb that was slain. And Jesus' blood is still taking effect today. It is still ready to take effect today. See, everyone is going to have to answer to this God. This God who's not just holy, but is holy, holy, holy. So holy, even the angels can't bear to look upon him. And that is the standard of his measurement. Perfect holiness. And yet the scriptures say very clearly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. We are all unclean. And the wages of sin... You know what a wage is, right? It's what we earn, what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And so you say, wait, wait a minute, that is, that, that's not good news. But God. But God being rich in mercy and because of his great love for us sent his one and only son as a divine substitute. And so on the cross, Jesus takes on the holy wrath and fury of God upon himself for your sins and for mine. 
but it's so much more than even just that because Jesus didn't just die for you, he lived for you. He lived the perfect, righteous life, the perfect life of obedience to the law, the life that we could never live. And so on the cross, there's actually a divine exchange, a double imputation that takes place. Jesus takes on the penalty for our sin and in exchange, we are then gifted with his perfect righteousness. The scriptures describe it like a pure white robe that covers us because our sin has been dealt with once and for all. It is finished. It is atoned for. And that is how we are seen before this holy God. So when that day comes, when the day of divine judgment comes, God does not judge you based on your sins, but on the perfect righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Listen, you see, we are no longer defined by our sin, but by our Savior. And that is incredibly good news. Just like we see in Isaiah, it's nothing that we do. We don't deserve it. We are not entitled to it. It is a miraculous gift of God in his grace and his mercy to us. And when we come to understand these two things, Right? When we come to see God for who he really is, and then we come to understand who we really are in light of who God is, when we understand the amazing news of the gospel, then we also see the need for the world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our third point. We need to see the need for the world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does this segment end? In verse 8, Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. So here God says, who will go? Who will go for us? Another Trinitarian reference, God existing eternally in three persons. And this Trinitarian God is looking for someone. He's looking for someone who he can send into the world. Someone who will go as a representative on his behalf. And, and so often we acknowledge that God is ascending God. But only in so much as that God the Father sent the Son into the world to accomplish our redemption. But you understand this, this outward expression, this outward orientation, this sending nature of God isn't something that's just witnessed in the New Testament, right? In other words, you don't have to wait until you get to the Gospels to see God sending forth his nature right from the very beginning. Right? In Genesis, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do this? How did God create order from, from the chaos of the cosmos? He sets forth his word. And his word goes forth from him to create the universe and everything in it. And now that is what is so incredible about the incarnation, right? That, that we read about in the beginning of John's gospel. God then sends his word once more. And his word comes down to the creation, to become flesh and dwell among us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus accomplishes the mission of salvation for God's people. And what does he do? Having atoned for our sin, having redeemed us, having made us holy and set apart for God's use, Jesus sends the Spirit of God to live inside the people of God. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So it's no wonder 
that Isaiah, having seen who God really is, having seen who he is in light of who God is, having experienced the amazing grace and mercy of the Lord, the only response for Isaiah that makes sense, the only logical response is send me. Send me. I, I have to go. I will go. I must go. I must tell others about this incredible God who I've encountered, this God who made atonement for our sins. Send me. Oh. If only we could get a hold of that. If only we could have such zeal. If only we could have this kind of response. But the truth is, if, if we're being honest, most Christians in America have been more eager to share an experience that we've had at a, at a restaurant. Right? We, we're, we're eager to, to tell others, to, to tweet about, to, to blog about the atmosphere and, and the music and, and the amazing food that we ate. But we will shy away from telling others about the bread of life and the living water that is found only in Jesus Christ. The only thing that will actually satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. We're eager to talk about the wonderful service that we receive from others, but we clam up when it comes to mentioning the Son of God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But you understand, that's our mission. That is the mission of the church, to alert everyone everywhere to the universal reign and rule of God through Christ by both our works and our words through both demonstration and declaration. The Apostle Paul summarizes this well in writing to the Corinthians. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You see, we cannot simply remain recipients of this incredibly Good news, we must share the gospel. Having received Christ, we must then represent Christ to the world because there is still a great need. And we have tremendous opportunities for sharing the gospel with a lost world. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to say, here I am, send me? You know, it's interesting, if we go back to verse 4, it says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Even the doorposts shake and tremble. Even inanimate objects are moved by the presence of God. Jesus said, if you don't, the rocks will cry out. So how can we who are uniquely made in the Imago Dei, the, the very image of God, how can we become so apathetic, so comfortable and complacent in God's presence that we do not feel compelled to move, to go, to do something in order to share this good news with those who so desperately need to hear it? You know, one of the things I love about reading the scriptures is seeing how God has done the most incredible things, 
if you're the most broken, messed up people. Right? So we should never underestimate what God can do through one person who is willing to serve him, right? Listen, never underestimate what God can do through you. So as the wrapping paper makes its way to the curb, as the Christmas lights and the decorations come down and get put away as they will, as we begin thinking about a new year, and what that is going to look like with our resolutions and our goals, I pray that we would not be so comfortable with everything that we have, so comfortable with all that God has blessed us with, that we too would find ourselves complacent and casual toward the Lord. Because this is an incredible time. This is an incredible time when we see the kingdom of God just unfurling all around us. Right, not only as the universal church, but as Woodside Bible Church, right? It's why we've spent so much time going over our 2020 vision plan, the, the under 40, the unchurched, the, the unreached that, that we want to reach with the gospel, the ways that you can partner with us in doing that. I mean, specifically here in Romeo, the building and the expansion plans that, that are coming forward that, that seem necessary for a group, a body of Christ that is growing, that is vibrant in their worship of the Lord. God is at work all around us, all around us, and we are invited to join him in what he is already doing. That's incredible. Jesus has come. He will come again to gather his bride and make all things new. But until that day comes, it is our honor. It is our privilege. It is our responsibility as ambassadors for Christ, as representatives, as heralds of King Jesus, to allow him to move through us. That this incredible grace, this mercy, that the, the gospel of Jesus would flow to us, through us, to the people around us for his glory. And that's our prayer. Would you join me in that this morning? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gift of your word today. In it, we are able to catch just a glimpse of the magnitude and the majesty of your reign from a throne that is high and lifted up, and we are so thankful for that. God, while our political state in our country can seem so shaky and unstable, God, we are thankful for one who is sovereign and in control over all things. We are thankful for a God who is holy, holy, holy. Even though we know that it means that on our best day, in our finest hour, even the very best we have to offer apart from Christ is but filthy rags. We can still rejoice. We can still thank you today because of your love and the love that, that compelled you to move, to move, to do something by the giving of your son the once and for all sacrifice for our sin in Jesus. God, we confess it, it was our sin that made his death necessary. And we are not worthy of your love and your grace and your mercy that is so freely poured out on us today. But Father, your word tells us that he who has forgiven much rejoices much. And we have been forgiven of much, so we will rejoice. We will rejoice. We will honor you. We will worship you, the only one who is worthy of our praise. And as we leave here today, 
Father, we just ask you would empower us through your spirit to not only be recipients of this forgiveness that is found in Jesus, but that somehow in some way that we would be vessels by which you pour out this love and forgiveness onto others. May we be ministers of reconciliation in a world that so desperately needs to hear the message of hope that is found only in Jesus Christ.